Hey, if you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Second Chronicles 33. And um, we're going to take a look tonight at something uh, special the Lord has for us. I know every time I've uh, um, come to this section of Scripture, I get excited. So here's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about Manasseh. So Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a good king. Hezekiah did it right. Hezekiah had a heart after God, right? He led the people in revival. Uh, one of the greatest miracles on the page of Scripture we see wrought during Hezekiah's reign. Remember Shennacherib, the bad guy from Assyria, comes and he's going to take over Judah. And uh, he comes saying, no God can save you. I'm going to come get you. There's nothing you can do. And so Hezekiah came before the Lord. He laid it all out before him. Hezekiah and a guy named Isaiah. You guys heard of him before, right? And they opened up the letters that Shennacherib wrote and the things that they were shouting. And they, as they laid them out, as they opened them up, they said, look, this is what they're saying, Lord, and we can't deliver us. You can deliver us. So they laid it out before him. The Lord sent one angel, 185,000 mighty men of valor, one angel, one pass. And the battle was over. Hezekiah didn't have to fight. Scripture tells us around that same time, Hezekiah fell ill. And he called for the prophet. And he asked the prophet, am I going to get better? And the prophet said, no, prepare yourself. You're, you're not going to get better. Set your, your family things in order. And, and the Scripture tells that Hezekiah cried out to God. And we can read about it in Kings a little more. Uh, a little more in depth in Kings. In Kings, he rolls over in his bed, he weeps, and he and he just cries out to God, you know, for more time. And the Bible says the Lord loved Hezekiah, so he gave him more time. During that time, Hezekiah fathered a son during the years that God gave him. Prior to that, we're not really sure who would have been king. Hezekiah didn't have any kids. He was a pretty busy fellow running the kingdom. Well, this son that takes over his name is Manasseh. Now, we should be familiar with Manasseh. Manasseh is a famous name, right? Manasseh is a name that comes from one of the, the tribes of Israel. Yeah? You remember when Joseph was discovered by his father Israel, um, Israel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, I'm going to adopt your two sons. Joseph had two kids. One's name was Ephraim. And the other's name was Manasseh. Joseph named his, his uh, oldest son Manasseh because he said, he is going to cause me to forget all the things my brother's done to me. So Manasseh means forgetful. Um, Manasseh becomes one of the tribes that splits, doesn't want to come into the promised land. Half of them stay outside, but they still help. The other 12 tribes during uh, Joshua's conquest of the nation of Israel. Now we come to a guy, Hezekiah, who's a godly king, following godly examples, has a son, picks out a godly name for his boy, Manasseh. Manasseh has the um, honor of being the king who rules the longest in the south. 55 years is his reign. He is also most well known for his wickedness. 
And every time we come to sections like that where we have a godly man and a child that is not, people struggle with the concepts. I don't know why. Maybe because they haven't had enough kids. Um, I don't have a problem with my kids choosing a direction that is different than mine. Let me rephrase that. I have a problem with it, but I don't have a problem understanding it. A lot of times people want to say, well, David, he's a godly king, but a horrible dad. Show me that. Where does it say that in the Bible? No, you're, you're making supposition because his kids did some bad things. Now, we want to put that same thing on us, those of us who have kids. Every time your child does something wrong, we got a girl in the news right now who's suing her parents. You guys seen that? Suing her parents. Her parents had rules for her. She didn't like the rules. So her parents basically told her, if you don't like the rules, you can move out. And so she had some friends who said, you can come live with us. So she moved in. Now she's suing her parents to pay for the rest of her private education, private school education, (coughs) and her college. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that all comes out. But every time we come to these kind of things, people start having questions. And, and, And those questions that they have, to be honest, I think are unhealthy questions. It kind of marks our society today. Because our society today is always looking for someone to blame for why you are like you are. If I'm an alcoholic and my dad was an alcoholic, I want to blame my dad. Well, I never had a chance. My dad was an alcoholic. Or whatever it might be. My dad spent a lot of time in jail or in prison. And I end up in in jail or prison. You get what I'm saying? We're, We're always looking for someone to blame. So we're going to talk about that tonight when we look at Manasseh. And what God says about it. And where God says that blame should be put or, 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 or where it shouldn't be. So we'll want to take a look at that. And, and so as we look at it, um, I always feel bad for Manasseh. <laughs> He's 12 years old and he becomes king of the nation. So which one of us was ready at 12 to run a nation? Now the only person who has it worse than him is Josiah. He's going to take over at 8. That's next chapter. We won't get there, I promise. So as we take a look at it, as we take a look at what what uh, Manasseh teaches us, hope we'll have eyes open and ears prepared to hear what it is that God wants to lay out for us. <clears throat> Chapter 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But, that word but is a word of contrast. What is he being contrasted with? Let's just back up a couple of verses. In verse 32 of chapter 32, it says, Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness. Indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet of the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. So you have this contrast with Hezekiah, godly, adored by the people. Great revival took place during his time. Hearts were turned back to the Lord, but Manasseh. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, in verse 2. According to the abomination of the nations which the Lord had cast out from the children of Israel. In essence, what you're going to see Manasseh do is rebuild everything Hezekiah tore down. Every altar, every high place, every Asherah pole, everything... that Hezekiah removed of the Canaanite influence among his people, Manasseh puts back. 
And we don't really know why. What we know is Manasseh, that he was just intrigued by that. And, and again, I, I think one of the ways that's important for us to be able to maintain an attitude of compassion is to see people the way God sees them. What do I know about Manasseh and God's reign? Look, there are guys who only ruled for a month or two. But God let Manasseh go for 55 years. Well, I call that grace. He gave him 55 years to repent. And it's kind of an interesting study when you start to look at the life, the horrible things that Manasseh did. Look what it says. He rebuilt the high places. So that's all the places on the hills where people could go and worship other deities. Okay, so they would build altars and, and different worship areas. Not real intricate, okay? It's not like building a church on a hill. It's like having an altar in a place where people could go and make offerings to other gods. <clears throat> so he built the high place that Hezekiah's father broke down. He raised up the altars for the Baals. The word Baal means Lord. Baal was the Lord of the storm. So you remember, we've talked about it before. Israel was in a a very desert area. In fact, God put them there on purpose so that they would have to rely on Him for rain. But the other nations worshipped a different God. They worshipped a God called Baal, the God of the storms. And they would make offering to Him so that the rains would come. God told the nation of Israel, if you are not, you and I are not on the same page, if you are wandering away from me, there's distance between us, I will withhold the rain. And all you have to do is come to me in an attitude of repentance and I'll restore you and I'll open up the floodgates of heaven. I'll make it rain. But what the people would do when the rain was withheld, they'd look and they'd say, well, those guys got rain over there and they pray to Baal. So they would just adopt that worship. They would just add it. It's not that they necessarily totally forsook God. Some did, but some would do both, right? Hey, the more gods I can make happy, the better off I'm going to be. It was a very... God is a monotheistic God in a very polytheistic uh, world at that time. Some still today. But God says, I'm a jealous God. No other gods. You will have no other gods before me. Just me. One God. Mono. Theistic. But the people had become polytheistic. Now, God would often compare His relationship to the people to marriage. And God was never really stoked about the people being uh, those who would have more than one wife. Right? God said, a man shall have one wife. Well, the Bible talks about a lot of people having more than one wife. Why is that? Because the Bible tells the truth. Well, you want the Bible to lie? People had more than one wife. God didn't tell him to go do it. In fact, God told the king specifically, do not multiply wives. Do not multiply horses. Do not multiply gold. Because they'll pull your trust from me. So, but the Bible is going to tell the truth. So when God compares it with a relationship today, we wouldn't be very stoked with a marriage relationship where, where our spouse had multiple partners, would we? Well, I'm not, I wouldn't be okay with it. If you're okay, there's something wrong with you. And there's a whole other course for that that we can help you with. But the idea is, that's what God would point to. You're unfaithful. So He would call them adulterers. 
adulterers and adulteresses because they had other gods. So we see him raising up the altars for the Baals, <laughs> making wooden images. Folks, those are Asherah poles. Um, those were used for, for sexual practices. So uh, that's something that they would set up when the Lord would talk about you are uh, um, shaming yourself under every green tree. Those were the Asherah poles. They would build these poles, and under those poles they would have illicit sexual relationships. Part of the worship of Asherah. So this is what all these things he's rebuilding. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven <coughs> and served them. All the hosts of heaven were the gods of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians who God delivered the people from, um, we see Manasseh starting to worship their gods. Follow the deities. You know, it's, it's no different, folks. They just change the names, right? Everybody get it? When the, when the Greeks were in charge, you had the Greek names to all the gods. We know them, right? You still study them in school, I'm pretty sure. And then when Rome took over, what did they do with all the gods? They changed the names. But the stories are the same, aren't they? Instead of Zeus, you got Jupiter. But it's the same story. The names changed, but the, the concepts behind them didn't. Same way when it was... When you had the Tower of Babel and the Lord confounded their languages, way back then you can trace almost all world religions to that moment. And the gods that they worshipped there. Great book if you want to read it. Not easy reading. The Two Babylons by, by Reverend Hislop kind of charts out how that, that worship from Babel, way back in Genesis chapter 10, followed through into all the different world religions and concepts that we see in the different nations that we've studied. So, he's worshiping them all. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. So, now he's building them in the temple. Now, his great-great-grandpa had done stuff like this. Now he's doing it. <coughs> so they put altars in the house of God. Uh, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he had the court of the Gentile, at this time probably the court of the women and the court of the men. Eventually you have three courts, court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the men. But the idea is the outer courtyards going into the temple are full of altars to worship the host of heaven, the gods of Assyria. On the high hills, you got an opportunity to worship whatever god you want. Under the Asherah poles, you can go, you can go be a part of that worship. He had all this stuff Manasseh sets up. <laughs> he took apart everything his dad put together. And the people followed him. But my question is, who's responsible? Manasseh? Or the people who follow him? And before we share our opinion, God has one, which usually is the most important. <laughs> I tend to lean, I don't know, more on His than I, than I do on my own. But let's see what else He did. <clears throat> Verse 6. And He caused His sons to pass through the, the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. The valley of the son of Hinnom. So there's three valleys that, that, that surround Jerusalem, uh, Rephaim comes in, uh, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, and the Valley, what's the other one, the, the Kidron. So we got Kidron, Hinnom, 
Rephaim, and you got you got uh, um, there's one more. What's the one that's called cheese that runs down through the middle? Means cheese. Why, why does that matter? It doesn't. I'm just trying to remember what the name of it was. But anyways, you have these valleys around Jerusalem. So the son of Hinnom was an area that became the dump for the people. But before it became the dump for the people, before it became, it also became an area where they would bury the poor. The, the what did they call that when Judas, uh, they said, go bury him in what? The potter's field, where they would throw away all their trash, right? The broken pottery that was not good for nothing anymore. So it, be, it becomes the, 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 uh, a field for the poor, where they would bury the poor in the valley of Hinnom. The reason it became the dump and the burial place for the poor and the place for refuse is because at this time, at the time of Manasseh, it was a place for the worship of the cult of the dead. They worshiped a God. Some say his name was Molech. We don't really know if Molech was actually his name or the word that they associated with passing through the fire. But the way that they would worship the god Molech is they would place an idol in a fire and they would lay their infants on the arms outstretched of Molech and allow their children to be burned in child sacrifice in the valley of Hinnom. God... uh, through Jeremiah says, you know, it never even entered into my thoughts. Well, my people would do things like this. But that's what the people used to do that lived there. So rather than being an influence to the people around them, the people around them were becoming an influence to them. Do you guys get what's going on? Manasseh, the king, sacrificed his children. The kings tells us he laid the foundation of his home on his kids. So there was a, a concept that when they would dig the foundation, they would put their children in the foundation that they dug and build their house literally on the bones of their kids. So pretty horrific stuff. Not that we're beyond that. We do the same thing today. We just we don't burn them on an altar. We burn them in a womb. But we still burn them. And greater numbers than they ever did. We do. In fact, our nation has now become the leading proponent to travel around the world and try to talk other nations into adopting that same practice. Well, we call it abortion, but it's the same thing. The solution that they put in the womb of the mom just burns the child. That's what it does. They just tell mom, baby can't feel it. If you spend any time looking around or you had an opportunity to see the movie Silent Scream, that's what Silent Scream is all about. Just because you can't hear the baby doesn't mean that when it opens its mouth, when the acid hits him, that he doesn't scream. So, <clears throat> before we're too hard on Manasseh, as a nation, we really haven't come that far. We just are better at hiding it. They did it in the Valley of Hinnom. In fact, Jesus called that place, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. You heard that word before? It becomes a word used to describe hell. Or the grave. Gehenna. Where they worship the dead. The cult of the dead. That's why it's all associated with those things. Jesus said of Gehenna, that's the place where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. You guys remember? So he's, he, he used it to describe hell. Well here, very much like a scene of hell, you have the children of Israel making child sacrifices. It's, it's pretty harsh. 
Then, not only that, he practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God. He put an idol in the house of God. Possibly, he placed it in the Holy of Holies. Which nobody's supposed to get into. And anytime somebody went in there with, without the, the right to be there, there are, are stories in the law where God kills people. But God doesn't kill Manasseh. God doesn't strike him dead. He's about as evil a guy as you can get. One bolt from heaven, right? One lightning bolt, thump, he's gone. <coughs> but God doesn't do it. He lets him reign the longest of every king. Longer than all the good kings. He lets Manasseh reign. Well, look what happens. Not only did he set this carved image in the house of God, which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land of which I have appointed to your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances, (coughs) excuse me, by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed from before the children of Israel. They actually became worse than the people God put out when he brought them in. Man, low point, right, for the nation of Israel. Low point for those who are called to be the light of of the Lord. Low point for them. In fact, verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So how did God speak to his people back then? Well, more often than not, through a prophet, right? You ever heard of that fellow Jeremiah? Well, let's take a look at what Jeremiah told him. It's Jeremiah chapter 15. So just go to the right. You'll go past Isaiah. And when you get past Isaiah, you'll bump into Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 15. Here's what God, God's sending Jeremiah to speak, uh, uh, to Manasseh, give him words of prophecy. Then the Lord said to me, so God's speaking to Jeremiah here in chapter 15. <clears throat> By the way, Jeremiah, just for background, has been praying for the nation. He's praying for the people that they'll change. And the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable to this people. So God says, look, even if Moses was here or Samuel, two guys that were, were way out in front having to, in, in terms of intercessory prayer for the people, uh, God's like, you know, even if they're asking me, <laughs> Jeremiah, I'm not inclined to listen. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, where shall we go? Then this is what you shall tell them. Such as for death to death. Such as are for the sword to the sword. Such as are for famine to famine. And such as are for the captivity to captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble. 
to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. And then God goes on and says, For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Excuse me, who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backwards. God didn't go anywhere, right? He says, you have left me. You forsook me. You forsook me. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. Oftentimes, people uh, think that God's long-suffering is His okay. God's long-suffering is usually there to bring about repentance. It's not an okay. Well, God didn't judge me for that. It's because God's given you space to repent. Be right. Get right with God. So here, the same way, he says, he says, I'm, I'm weary of relenting. I, I, I need to, it's time. Judgment needs to come. Judgment needs to come. So he says, I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. And I will bereave them of children. And I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Since there is no repentance, God says, I'll take my hand off. You, you, you have forsook me, so I'll let go. The Bible tells in the book of Colossians that in Him, in Jesus, all things consist. You ever felt like your life is unraveling? Well, the ability for your life to get together is found in Christ. Uh, we forsake Him, He just lets go. He doesn't let go for punishment. Look, the punishment of God for sin was poured out on a son on the cross. Until you stand before God at the great white throne judgment, you are not being punished for your sins. His son was. You are in a time of grace where the long-suffering of God awaits the repentance of men. What you have in your life and what comes into our life is what... Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 6, right? Whatsoever a man sows, that's how he reap. We get a little upset about what we plant. Maybe we should plant something different. If we don't like the harvest, you know, if you don't like peas, don't plant them. You'll never find me planting peas, ever. (laughs) Ever. If I'm starving to death, and all I got is a pocket of seeds for peas, I'm going to say, I'll see you soon, Lord. I'll give them peas to somebody else. <coughs> so, we want to be careful what we're planning. The judgment of God poured out on His Son. So, in order to get our attention, God lets go. He says, okay, I'm, I'm not protecting you. My hand's not on you. Your harvest has come. And when that harvest comes, the Bible's got a word for it. It's called the furnace of affliction. And in the furnace of affliction, Jesus, according to... Uh, Malachi chapter 3, he's a fire, but he's not a destroying fire. He's a refining fire. And what's the refining fire do? It shows us the crud, right? All the dross rises to the top. And when the dross comes to the top, we scrape it away. Once again, we can see the reflection of the master in the gold or the silver. In the same way, the refining fire comes to the nation Shows the dross. They can choose to stay there in the dross, covered over them all their filth. Or they can repent, scrape the dross away, and allow the reflection of God once again to be 
evident in them as a nation or in we as individuals. Well, <coughs> here's what the Lord declares to them. He says that uh, their widows will be increased to, to me more than the sands of the sea. And I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunder at noonday. And I will cause anguish and terror to fall upon them suddenly. And she languishes who bore seven and has breathed her last. The idea of having seven children is like the idea of having complete joy. You, you've had, you know, a full family, seven, the number of completion. So it, in poetic language, he's saying, look, the one who is so happy for all her children is going to lose it all. Lose them and her life. So you're moving from complete joy to total sorrow. Her son has gone down while it was yet day, and she is ashamed that confounded, and the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Now, <coughs> Jeremiah goes through a bunch of questions and answers with God, asking for God's protection and, and for the remnant. But the Lord says, look, this is the judgment. Manasseh's bad. So I'm going to put him in the furnace of affliction. Every man, woman, and child in the furnace of affliction has the same opportunity to make the same kind of choices, right? Look back at Second Chronicles 33. So the Lord spoke to Manasseh and the people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks. So the way the Assyrians would take away their their prisoners with gaffing hooks, they'd put it through their jaw, um, sometimes through the bottom, out through the top, linked to a chain, hook them to the next guy in front of them. It's amazing when you hook all the, the captives up that way, how little they want to try to run away. They just follow the dude in front of them. So Manasseh the king is taken by the Assyrians to a place called Babylon with the hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him to Babylon. What's verse 12 say? Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God. Why did God wait 55 years for Manasseh? Because God knew if I give him enough time, he's going to come to me. And it's more important to God to give opportunity for repentance than that everything is, is easy on the outside. So God says, hey, I'm going to let him go. And I'm going to take him with hooks to a prison. And in that prison, he's going to do exactly what Solomon said they should and what the Lord told Solomon to have him do. But when we look at uh, at that idea, the furnace of affliction, it comes from Isaiah 48. In Isaiah 48.10, here's what the Word says. <clears throat> Behold, I have refined you like silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. See, God allows these things to take place. In fact, if we back up just to get a little bit of the context. It says, beginning in verse 6, See, you have heard, see all this, 
And will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you didn't know it. They are created now, not from the beginning, and before this day you have not heard them, lest you would say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. <laughs> that's, that's the concept of the doulos. Not necessarily meaning your ear is open to hear. It means your ear is opened as a slave. Where they would take the ear to the doorpost of the house and drive an awl through it and put a ring in the ear that marked them as a slave. Their ears weren't opened. They didn't want to serve God. It was a, it was a choice. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you were called a transgressor from the room, from the womb, sin from the womb. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. I will be long suffering. I will wait. I will be patient. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I will refine you, but not as silver. I will test you in the furnace of affliction. Same place. God took Manasseh. What did it say? For when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord. Turn left in Second Chronicles to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And remember, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon. Second Chronicles chapter 7 verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So when I shut up heaven, didn't say if, when I shut up heaven and there's no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal the land. So Manasseh, drug off with a hook, thrown in prison in Babylon, prayed. And the Scripture tells us what happened. He prayed. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to Him and he received His request. He heard His supplication and brought Him back to Jerusalem and into His kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, Yahweh, was God. So in the furnace of affliction, in the prison in Babylon, he prayed, (coughs) and the Lord answered his prayer, took him out of the prison, and set him back up as king. Now, that must have been a crazy set of events, don't you think? Well, Manasseh goes back to becoming king. Then what happens? Totally different kingdom now. Manasseh, horrible, evil, killed his kids, did all these terrible things, but God forgave him. He comes back into the city in in, in verse 14. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of the Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed the Ophel. And he raised it to a very great height and he put military captains in all the fortified cities. Verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of every city. He repaired the altar of the Lord. He sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. 
and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. He did everything. It was not just words, right? He did not just say, um, forgive me, I'm going to change. He said, forgive me, God forgave him, and he changed. It was not just words. There was action behind what he said, right? He did not just say it. He did it. He turned. But you know what he discovered? It's always easier to lead people into sin than to lead them out. Because it says he commands them. He's their king. So he commands them. Hey, stop worshiping all these things. Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice (coughs) on the high places. But they only sacrifice to the Lord their God. What's the big deal? Well, God said there's only one place to sacrifice. In the temple. So they're trying to come to the Lord their own way, not God's way. How did Manasseh come to the Lord? He came to the Lord God's way. How did he do it? He repented. He asked forgiveness. And God gave it. The most wicked king ever. God forgave him. Gave him back the kingdom. He's going to finish his reign as a man trying to do right. And he's going to turn his kingdom over to his son, who's 22 years old. Which king will his son follow? Early Manasseh or late Manasseh? Which one will (coughs) his son go after? says, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And his prayer, how God received his entreaty, his entreaty, and all his sin and trespass, and the sites that he built, the high places, and where he set up wooden images and carved images before uh, he was humbled. Indeed, they are all written among the sayings of Hosea, or the sayings of the seers. Um, We don't have any of those. (laughs) Otherwise, I would read to you his prayer. They're, They're not here. Those writings are lost. So Manasseh, Rested with his fathers, they buried him in his own house, and his son Amon reigned in his place. Now Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned only two years. His dad just did 55. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like his father Manasseh had done. And Amon sacrificed all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them, and he didn't humble himself before the Lord like Manasseh had humbled. But Ammon trespassed more and more. The question still comes, right? <coughs> Who's responsible? I mean, Manasseh provided that horrible example for his son. Surely it's all Manasseh's fault. Ammon followed the previous examples. He didn't humble himself. He didn't repent. Who's at fault when your father was a sinner? Who's at fault when those who have gone before you have been wicked? The greatest thing we can learn is to learn to take responsibility for your own choices and stop blaming somebody else. And For my proof text, I'll take you to Ezekiel 18. 
I could take you to Jeremiah too, but Ezekiel's so much more colorful a character. <laughs> so we go to, to Ezekiel. So you turn to the right, you're going to pass Isaiah, you're going to pass Jeremiah, and then you're going to come to Ezekiel. And we're going to roll to Ezekiel 18. Now, all these prophets are, are at the same period of time, okay? Ezekiel is, 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 and Jeremiah, they overlap, let's say. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. God says, why do you guys keep saying this? So my dad did something wrong and I got to pay the price. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Not your dad's fault or your mama's or your uncle's. Or the person who molested you, or the guy who did you wrong, it's not their fault. What you do in your life. They answer for their sin, you answer for yours. He goes on, if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, and he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, he has not defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman in her impurity. He has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge. He has robbed no one by violence and has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. If he has not exacted usury or interest, he has not charged interest nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, from sin, and executed true judgment between man and man. If... He has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully. He is just. He will live, says the Lord God. If he begets a son (coughs) who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains and defiled his neighbor's wife, has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idol or committed abomination... He has exacted or charged interest or taken increase. Shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die and his blood will be upon himself. If, however, he has a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise who has not eaten on the mountains or lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received interest or increase, (coughs) but has executed my judgments, walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the sin of his father. He will live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. 
Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father? Because the Son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. Everyone is responsible for his own sin. His own choice. The Son will not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from his sin which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, does what is lawful and right, he shall not surely die. None of the transgressions which he committed shall be remembered. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he will live. Listen, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked would die, says the Lord, and not that he should repent and live? Look, God's pretty clear, right, on what he's looking for. When we talk about Ammon and the example, you know, um, Manasseh was a poor example. So Ammon, his son, was faced with a choice. Ammon's heart was obviously harder than Manasseh's, or God would have given him more time. But is God required to give everyone the same amount of years? The soul that sins shall die, that's God's judgment. We all live day by day on the grace of God. We don't deserve anything He gives us. We are wrought in sin. It's His grace. That gives time. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's his choice. He gave Manasseh time and he repented. I believe if Ammon would have been willing to repent, God would have gave him time too. The Lord knows the hearts, don't he? So he wasn't willing. Two years, he died. But he has an eight-year-old child. Ammon does. His name is Josiah. He's one of my favorites. Josiah is a good king who serves the Lord and brings another revival. So look, when we look at these things, it shows us over and over again the the (coughs) individual person's responsibility for the choices he makes. Do my choices affect the people around me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will give an answer, an account for those choices and those things I do. I will. But praise be to the Lord that Jesus Christ bore my guilt on the cross. So when I stand before God, a guilty man, just as guilty as every other person on the face of the earth, when I stand before God, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, I can't remember your sins. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west. And I won't remember them anymore. That's the grace that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ and our faith in Him that saves. But if a man will not receive the free gift that Jesus Christ gives, he stands before God on his own. No blood. And there's only going to be one verdict. Guilty. And there will be only one punishment. 
You can read about it in Revelation 20. A lake of fire, which was not prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But it's the place those who say, I will not have this man rule over me. <coughs> That's the place they go. We arrive in heaven at the, at the resurrection. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go straight to the Lord, you know, and, and we await that ultimate resurrection that, that occurs. When that resurrection has happened, and we are all there, on that day, you'll see Manasseh. He's there. Because he repented. And he changed. But you won't see his son. He won't be there. You will see his grandson. He will be there. And the Bible will say that the downfall of the nation is pictured with the sin of Manasseh because Manasseh was the head. But the Lord just said in Ezekiel, everyone's responsible for their own sin. Though the king sacrificed his child, didn't mean you had to. Right? Though everyone else is doing it, that's not a okay to do it. Right? We've all had those talks with our kids, but everybody else was doing it. And then we say something like, well, if everybody else was jumping off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? And they look at you with, well, maybe. I see the trap. <coughs> I see the trap that's, that's being laid out. So when we look at Manasseh, that's what Manasseh teaches us. Bad, wicked man whose father was a godly man. Was it Hezekiah's fault for the choices Manasseh made? Does anywhere the Bible say Hezekiah is a lousy dad? No, I I prefer to just go with what the Bible says. You know what I mean? Not to bring in my own thoughts. Well, he must have been bad because if he was a good dad, his kids would have been perfect, right? That's how we try to comfort ourselves. If I do everything right as a parent, my kids will be okay, right? Sorry, man. Our kids get the same thing we got. Choice. They get to make it. That's why God says, pray for your kids. And don't never stop. Don't never quit. (coughs) That's our responsibility. So that we prayerfully can have because there were those guys and those families who had good kids and they didn't have good kids because they were somehow good gooder people it's not about how gooder you are right it's it's god moving and working it's how good he is and relying in him so man every time i look at manasseh i i, I think of my kids think of my boys and just reminds me how much more I got to pray because I don't get to make their choices for them anymore. I don't get to say, no, you're not going to go there. No, you're not going to do that. No, you're not going to. I don't get to do that. They're grown. It's time for their choices now. But it's not time for me to stop being a dad. My job is to pray without ceasing. How long has Jesus prayed for me? long time is it, is it ever a good time to quit the Bible says men ought always to pray and never lose heart 
That means don't ever stop. Don't ever quit. <coughs> Keep praying. Keep praying that God in His long-suffering and in His grace can reach them where we can't. And if our kids are doing great with the Lord, then praise God that our kids are doing great. And continue to praise God for them and continue to pray for them because life is not a sprint, right? At least for most of us. It's a marathon. we got a long ways to go, right? The Bible says you have need of endurance. Uh, we do. We need endurance. So we pray. So we follow that example. So we look to the teachings in the Word that tell us. Now, all throughout Ezekiel, he said, if you keep my judgments, if you do my commandments, if you follow my law. Well, how do we do that? It's really not all that hard. The only way to do it is in a relationship with Christ. In the Old Testament, all these guys did it by looking forward to Messiah, the promise. We do it by having a relationship with Messiah, that His righteousness is now mine. Right? He who knew no sin became sin for me, that what I might become the righteousness of God, that I might be made righteous. That I might be able to express. How do I keep his law? Jesus said all the law and the prophets are summed up in this. What was it? Love. The Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Wow. That's a lot simpler than memorizing the 613 commandments, right? Some of us even have a hard time with the 10. (coughs) Love God. Love your neighbor. For love fulfills the law that's what he declared how do we get that love romans 5 the love of god is poured out in your heart by the holy spirit so how do we walk righteous we walk in christ how do we accomplish the law we walk in christ we have that relationship and in that relationship we have everything we need to be the men and women god's asking us to be It's all His work. We just let Him do it. Invite Him to do it. Allow Him to do that pervert work. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank You for this time, for an opportunity to, (coughs) excuse me, to study Your Word. To look, God, at just the amazing things that Your Word lays out for us, God. And what really... In reality, you are calling us to, and what you're desiring from us, Lord, is that decision. That decision that says, I'm going to live my life, like Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm going to live my life sold out, abiding in Christ. He's the only way. There's no other way to please the Father, for without faith it's impossible to please